Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Jeff Salzman here. It's April 15th, 2014. I'm here in Boulder, Colorado, as always, with Brett Walker, who is handling the tech. And we're very happy to be with you tonight and to do what we always do, which is to look at the movements of politics and culture and consciousness and spirituality with an eye towards the updraft of evolution, the movement that is moving towards complexity and indeed towards ever greater structures of goodness, truth, and beauty. The Daily Evolver is made possible by Integral Life, which is the central hub of the worldwide integral community and the home of Ken Wilber's latest work as well as all of his extensive archives. And I'd encourage you to uh, check out the new calendar on Integral Life. It's on the news and events page, and it organizes a lot of what's going on in the integral world space. A couple other uh, points of housekeeping. Uh, The Daily Evolver is now also available on iTunes, and you can search on iTunes. It's a podcast there. Or link to it on the dailyevolver.com. And we will be adding episodes, past episodes, as we go along. I think we're up to 89 or 90 episodes at this point. I would also encourage you, if you're really interested in getting this as a theory, and I know some of you are a little more casual about that than others, but if you are, uh, there's a couple diagrams that really help understand the basic theory behind what I'm talking about. And you can find these at thedailyevolver.com under the theory tab. Or you can also just go to the email that came from me, Jeff Salzman, to remind you of this call. And on that email, uh, towards the bottom, is a link to diagrams of the uh, levels of development or the altitudes of development that we talk about. For those of you who understand spiral dynamics, it's basically the evolution of the V-memes. And a diagram on the quadrants, which are the basic building blocks of reality. So if you're so moved, check that out. All right. So let's then move to the topics at hand for the evening. And I want to start tonight, as I often do, with a quick poll on a topic that got a lot of attention. And it's, I think, interesting from an integral point of view. And it's the It wasn't quite a firing, but it was the pushing out by the board of directors of Mozilla uh, of their new CEO and actually a co-founder, a man by the name of Brendan Eich. He was pushed out of Mozilla as a CEO because I guess it's six years ago. Yeah, in 2008, when Obama was first running for president, there was a proposition in California that basically prohibited gay marriage. It was Proposition 8, a famous proposition. It passed by 55%. And um, he donated $1,000 to that proposition. So he donated against gay marriage. And uh, this caused an outcry when it came to the surface. And, you know, a lot of Mozilla's customers and, you know, a lot of bad publicity and press and Silicon Valley and so forth, which is, a you know, liberal bastion pretty much. So he was eased out. So if you think that Mozilla did the right thing by doing that, press one. If you think that that ought not have happened to Brendan Eich, press two. And if you're not sure, press three. And we'll take a look at the poll here in a second and, you know, some of my thoughts on this. 
So while Brett is adding up the poll, and again, if you think it was a good idea or a good decision, press one, bad decision, press two, I don't know, press three. So I wanna look at another quick story that caught my eye this week, and it was actually last week, and that was the publishing by Michael Lewis of his newest book called Flash Boys. And Michael Lewis is a legendary journalist and writer about particularly Wall Street. He, he wrote um, the classic book Liar's Poker about the mortgage crisis uh, in the 1990s and uh, also wrote Moneyball. In his new book, Flash Boys, it's about the high-speed trading, the high-speed and high-frequency trading that goes on in Wall Street where... You know, we tend to think of the internet and the global brain, if you will, as being instantaneous, that uh, information travels from this part of the globe to that part of the globe in a, you know, at the speed of light. And I guess that's true, but it turns out that, you know, the speed of light ain't nothing. And so it actually turns out that you are, are better off if you park your servers right across the street from the stock exchange so that these electronic impulses have uh, a shorter distance to travel, and you get the information and you get your trades in a millisecond earlier than everybody else. And so there were people who were doing this, and they were making a lot of money, and he exposes this. Not that it's necessarily illegal uh, yet, but of course, after the book was published, the FBI announced an investigation, and there is a pretty good consensus. The government thinks that this is illegal, and there's a pretty good consensus that this will be changed. So what's interesting to, to me about this is we talk a lot on the Daily Evolver about basically the evolution of corruption and that what we often see as corruption in the third world or even in Russia uh, or in uh, you know, places where there are strong men leading the country and oligarchs leading the country. Uh, as we say, you know, that, that's typical of a stage of evolution. It's the economy at red and amber stages of development as we get higher in our stages of development that the nature of corruption changes so that when we get to uh, post-modernity or the green altitude of development on our levels of development chart, the economic injustices of the world are really made possible by the unequal distribution of information. And this is a line from Time Magazine about his book. And I think it's really true it's not so much, I mean, it, it certainly still happens that there's a you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of philosophy or, or, or uh, you know, that that's a, a way of life at certain stages of development, even in the developed and Western world. But more than ever, people are basically rigging the system uh, by having unequal distribution of information. And I think that's, you know, something that we keep, need to keep an eye on as we continue to develop. Uh, that it is essentially a green emergent because the green altitude of development in the lower right quadrant is this computerized, cloud-based, uh, instantaneous, globalized information system. And that can be rigged as easily as a contract. So just thought that was interesting. Okay, let's go back and look at this. Brendan Eich situation, the CEO of Mozilla. So it turns out that 6% of you think it was a good idea that he was eased out. 
42% of you think it was a bad idea, and 52% of you aren't sure or don't know. So that's interesting to me that the majority, I mean, there was actually very few, 6%, who think it was a good idea. And I'm actually going to be maybe adding to that and um, I'll maybe I'll bring it up to 7%, but I, I'm going to argue that it was a good idea, that it was at least okay. I'm, I'm a little bit, I could go either way on this thing, but, but here's the argument, is that first of all, when we talk about the thought police or the speech police and the idea of political correctness, and of course this is the critique that Mozilla is getting, is that you know political correctness outrode other factors in this case, uh, political correctness is always a factor at every stage of development. It, we, if we look at the red altitudes of development, uh, you can't speak out against the warlord or the secret police or the power structure that is in, in power. And as an example of that, look at North Korea. That is politically incorrect to speak against the Kim family. At the amber stage of development, or the traditionalist stage of development, it's not okay to speak out against God. And you can see this in Pakistan or in a lot of the Muslim countries that are actually more red amber, where it's actually an offense that you can be executed for to speak out against the Prophet Muhammad. And that is a higher stage of development than the warlord, but it's the same idea. At orange, or modernity, you can't speak out against, um, you can't speak out in favor of God or spirit. Everything is reduced to, if you look at the quadrant diagram, to the right-hand quadrants, to the exteriors, to neurons, to uh, material. And the interiors of spirit and consciousness and so forth uh, tend to be diminished at this stage of development. And it's hard to talk about spirit in, in um, the um, scientific material world. And at the green altitude, the thing you can't speak out against are victimized minorities. And first of all, let's pause <laughs> and see that, wow, that's cool. That's great progress, that we actually can't speak out now against the people who have been oppressed. Uh, I think it's a wonderful emergent. Uh, but you can also see that it is a certain kind of thought police and speech police. And at, at some point, we probably want to move beyond that. But what still puts me on the side of this was a, an okay thing and maybe even a good idea for Mozilla is that there was really no diminishment of free speech here. No company uh, gets or has to keep a CEO that is drawing negative attention towards them. That's, they're free to, to change that. And of course, customers are free to support or not support a company uh, depending on how they feel about them. And this kind of thing, particularly, it's not just that he thought uh, uh, about uh, not supporting gay marriage, but he actively worked against gay marriage. And you can see that if he had been uh, working actively against interracial marriage or something like that, it would have been a, you know, you can easily imagine that extrapolating to a, a firing offense. I just want to read a couple results or a couple uh, comments from, from different parts of the political spectrum. Uh, Andrew Sullivan was very much opposed to Brendan Ike being uh, eased out. And he said he saw, saw the Ike episode as a defeat, not a victory for our cause. And he's, of course, a, I think he's pretty integral. He's a gay 
Uh, he often comes, calls himself a conservative, but I think that's one of the ways he just bucks the system of, of you know, generally gay liberalism. Uh, he said, we've made such rap rapid progress because we've patiently persuaded our fellow Americans of our humanity and our vision of a more tolerant and diverse society. Now that we're winning that debate, it's wrong to try to silence and punish those who still disagree, some of whom do so out of sincere religious conviction. If we demand that holdouts be placed in the stocks for public shaming, it will make us no better than the anti-gay bullies who came before us. And so that's from, you know, the, the anti-side, which most of you were on. Uh, from the pro-side, uh, from Tim Tiemann in the Daily Beast, he writes, conservatives may find this easing out of, of um, Ike to be both shocking and galling, but the shame surrounding homosexuality has positively shifted from those who are gay to those who are anti-gay. And I sort of, I thought that was a really good observation, that it used to be shameful to be gay, and now it's shameful to be anti-gay. I guess that's progress. Court after court, he writes, has found the traditional arguments against gay marriage are, quote, irrational and absurd. So, Ike wasn't bullied out of his job, he was shamed out of it. So, anyway, as I say, I just think this is evolution working its thing, and um, uh, it's always kind of messy. And on any given incident like this, uh, I can go either way. All right. Oh, I also want to point out that if you have any comments or questions, we will take them uh, if we can. And just press one at this point, and Brett will keep an eye on you. And when the time comes, we can patch you in. So now... I want to turn my attention to an article that was actually sent to me by a listener, Ryan Ulazek. Ulazek, I'm sorry, Ryan. Ryan Ulazek, and it's a article that I had actually caught wind of, but I hadn't seen. And it was it's by Ezra Klein, and Ezra Klein is another uh, man who I think is worthy of attention from integralists in terms of a political commentator. He's uh, young, probably late 30s at this point, and he's very smart and very prolific. He works for the Washington Post. Here's a, a new a column from him that, uh, as I said, Ryan sent to me. That It's called, How Politics Makes Us Stupid. And I think it really reveals some integral understanding. And I'm going to read a little bit from it to just get started, just a minute or so. So he writes, and this is from April 6th column. There's a simple theory underlying much of American politics. It sits at the base of almost every speech, every op-ed, every article, and every panel discussion. It courses through the Constitution and is a constant in President Obama's most stirring addresses. It's what we might call the more information hypothesis, the belief that many of our most bitter, bitter political battles are mere misunderstandings. The cause of these misunderstandings? Too little information, be it about climate change, taxes, Iraq, or the budget deficit. If only the citizenry were more informed, the thinking goes, then there wouldn't be all this fighting. It's a, it's a seductive model. It suggests that our fellow countrymen aren't wrong so much as they're misguided or ignorant or 
more appealingly, misled by scoundrels from the other party. It holds that our debates are tractable, or that is, solvable, and that the answers to our toughest problems aren't very controversial at all. The theory is particularly prevalent in Washington, where partisans devote enormous amounts of energy to persuading each other that there's really a right answer to the difficult questions in American politics, and that they have it. But the more information hypothesis isn't just wrong, it's backwards. Cutting-edge research shows that the more information partisans get, the deeper their disagreements become. And he goes on to, to cite research from Yale University law professor Dan Kathan, who set out to test a question that continuously puzzles scientists. Why isn't good evidence more effective in resolving political debates? And so they did a very interesting experiment that Ezra Klein uh, comments on here. And they started by using a classic social science experiment where they presented a set of statistics about the effectiveness of a certain skin cream in healing a rash. So a non-political issue. And in quadrants, there were four numbers. Uh, one number was the number of people who used the cream and the rash got better. In the second quadrant were the people who used the cream and the rash got worse. Number three, the people who didn't use the cream and the rash got better. In number four quadrant, didn't use the cream and the rash got worse. So the question is, was the cream effective? And, and the experiment is set up in a way that's a little tricky. So the people who are better at math do better on the, on the quiz than the people who are not so good at math. And that's that. It pretty much was, is, is a pretty good control model for non-political problems such as this. So then Dan Kalin and his associates drafted a political version of this problem. This version used the same numbers as the skin cream question, exact same numbers, but instead of it being about skin cream and rashes, the narrative set up a focus on a proposal to ban people from carrying concealed weapons and handguns in public. So the grid now, the quadrants now, compared crime data in cities that banned handguns against crime data in cities that didn't. In some cases, as they were doing the experiment, the numbers properly calculated showed that the ban had worked to cut crime. In other cases, the numbers showed that it had failed, because this is an experiment, and they were working the numbers. So what, was, what happened here was interesting. Presented with this problem, a funny thing happened, as, as reclined writes. Good subjects, no matter how good subjects were at math, it stopped predicting how well they did on the test. Now it was ideology that drove the answers. Liberals were extremely good at solving the problem when doing so proved that gun control legislation reduced crime. But when the uh, data presented uh, the problem and suggested that gun control had failed, their math skills stopped mattering. They tended to get the problem wrong no matter how good they were at math. Conservatives exhibited the same pattern, just in reverse. So this, you know, really surprising result of this is that 
being better at math didn't just fail to help partisans converge on the right answer. It actually drove them further apart. In other words, the people who weren't good at math were 25 percentage points likelier to get the answer right as long as it fit their ideology. And if you were good at math, you were 45% instead of 25% uh, more likely to get the answer right when it fit your ideology. So in other words, as Ezra writes here, the smarter the person is, the dumber politics makes them. It turns out that people weren't reasoning to get the right answer. They were reasoning to get the answer that they wanted to be right. And I think that's really interesting. And it really, I think from an integral point of view, points out the power of these stages of development. As we know, the traditional stage of development, the, as we call the amber altitude, is the home of the most conservative, the socially conservative, religious conservatives. They're traditionalists. They're essentially pre-modern. And then modern is sort of divided between conservative and liberal, with the businessmen and women being more conservative and the scientists and academics being more liberal. And then when we get to the green altitude or the postmodern stage of development, most people are liberal at that stage of development. And that these really matter, in a sense, more than facts, because you have different sets of facts. You have different antenna. You have different ways of looking at things, different ways of processing information. Uh, you receive different information. And this is really very, very powerful. And this social science experiment really, I think, demonstrates it. He goes on. So the question is, why does this happen? And, and um, I just gave an explanation. But the explanation given by Dan Cahan, the Yale researcher, he points to a theory that he calls identity protective cognition. And he describes it this way. As a way of avoiding dissonance and estrangement from varied groups, individuals subconsciously resist factual information that threaten their defining values. Elsewhere, he puts it even more pithily, what we believe about the facts tells us who we are. And the more important psychological imperative most of us have in a given day is protecting our idea of who we are and our relationships with the people we trust and love. And he says, anyone who has ever found themselves in an angry argument with their political or social circle knows well how threatening it feels. For a lot of people, being right just isn't worth picking a bitter fight with the people they care about. That's particularly true in a place like Washington, where social circles and professional lives are often organized around people's politics and the boundaries of what those tribes believe are getting sharper. And he points out, and I think very accurately demonstrates, how polarity in the political culture in general has gotten worse since the mid-20th century. And, and here's what he writes about it. In the mid-20th century, the two major political parties were ideologically diverse. Dem Democrats in the South were often more conservative and the Republicans in the North. The strange jumble in political coalitions made disagreements easier. The other party wasn't so threatened because it included a lot of people you had agreed with. But today, however, the parties have sorted by ideology. 
One consequence of this is that Washington has become a machine for making identity protective cognition even easier. Each party has its allied think tanks, its go-to experts, its favorite magazines, its friendly blogs, its sympathetic pundits, its determined activists, its ideological money men. Both the professionals and the committed volunteers who make up the party machineries are members of the same social circles, Twitter worlds, Facebook groups, workplaces, and many other ecosystems that would make very life very unpleasant for them if they strayed too far from the faith. And so these institutions end up employing a lot of very smart, very sincere people whose formidable intelligence makes certain that they are tip that they typically stay in line. To do anything else would upend their day-to-day lives. And I think that's really an interesting thing, and it's one of the uh, sort of perverse consequences of having this green information system that I talked about a little earlier, where everybody can talk to everybody, the internet. So while as a kid, I lived in a community where Republicans and Democrats lived together, talked together, thought together, you know, played cards together, all of that good stuff. Now I have both the larger social circle and the means of communication that here in Boulder, I could socialize with people who agree with me if I want to. And certainly online, we can not only find people who basically agree with us in terms of conservative or liberal, but we can find the people who, are cons- to, who agree with us in the particular flavor of thinking that we have. And there's nothing necessarily wrong f- with this from an evolutionarily point of view, evolutionary point of view. Because we see that one of the ways that evolution moves forward, one of the engines of evolution, is that um, opposites or polarities have to be formed and seen in order for us to have a new synthesis. This is the old Hegelian philosophy of a thesis arises, that is a point of view, traditionalism, let's say, or religious, religionism, so forth, uh, and then an antithesis comes in, an atheism, a secu- secular thinking, a modern thinking. And what arises out of that is a new synthesis, something that has the best of both the thesis and the antithesis. So this is, as I said, just part of the deal. So from a typical, I, th- I think you could see this worldwide, but let's use America, American conservatives tend to be at that amber, as I said, in that amber stage of development. And the thinking at that stage of development, and this is, you know, just a basic of uh, psychology, is that mind at that stage of development is what we call absolutistic. It's black and white. It is suspicious of shades of gray. It's coming out of shades of gray in the sense of it's coming out of chaos and it's trying to organize the world and what's right and wrong. And that's what it ought to be doing. That's what people ought to be, how they ought to be thinking at that stage of development. By the time you move through orange into green, you're at a pluralistic mind, which is all about shades of gray. And uh, the old absolutistic ways of thinking feel very archaic and you know, even a little bit embarrassing. And so these are very, very different minds. They're not, they don't just think different things. They think differently. And this is where I sort of think that the thesis that uh, Dan Kalin and his uh, research team came up with, 
that people stay in the groove of their tribe because they don't want to suffer the consequences of, of um, you know, pissing off their tribe. I think that's true. I think that's the lower left dimension. But there's also an upper left dimension. And that is, this is how they think. This actually makes sense to them. Um, it's the you know, receptors that they have. It's the processing system that they have, the operating system that they have. And, you know, it's not like they're doing it just to stay in the group. They honestly believe it. So, you know, this is good. And as these uh, different points of view become more and more focused and people, you know, become more and more committed in a sense and more and more alive and uh, enlivened by their own ideologies, then there's a, a move towards uh, an integration. And I still think the best integration was presented by Steve McIntosh in, in, in his paper from the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And he talked about that the next uh, evolute in political thinking will be the progressive libertarian, that is the conservative who actually wants to use conservatism to move the ball forward and not just go back, which is you know, what more conservative conservatism would be. So progressive, conser I'm sorry, progressive uh, libertarianism or conservatism and then optimistic postmodernism. Uh, so people at the green altitude tend to be depressed and, you know, thinking the world's going to hell. Of course, all first-year memes think that in a certain way. But um, to have optimistic postmodernists is a new evolution um, uh, structure. And so, again, progressive libertarians and optimistic postmoderns. And I think that, as we've talked about, this is the sort of cultural disposition and political disposition of the millennials. We did a, uh, a show on that a while back. So I think this is, you know, things moving forward. All right. So, again, if you have any comments or questions on any of this, uh, press 1. All right. So let's turn to the next story I wanted to look at. And this is, you know, relates to what's going on really in real time in the Ukraine, between Russia and the Ukraine. An essay that was in Time Magazine, it was a cover story of Time Magazine the week before last, called The Old World Order. And it was a major essay by really a major thinker in American intelligentsia, Robert D. Kaplan. And Robert D. Kaplan wrote this article. It's called The Old World Order, How Geopolitics Fuels Endless Chaos and Old School Conflicts in the 20th Century. And it caught my eye because Robert Kaplan is um, conservative and was originally thought to be a neoconservative, which is a, a term that he doesn't like anymore. He was actually one of the intellectual architects of the Iraqi war. He worked in the Bush administration as a, you know, one of the think tanks. Supporting that war is something he regrets and has apologized for, but he still has a very interesting thinking in terms of what's actually going on in the world. And while I fundamentally disagree with his final conclusions, he has a really interesting and worthy argument, and I want to just share some of what he wrote in this article and uh, from an earlier book that he wrote called The Coming Anarchy. 
Shattering the Dreams of the Post-Cold War, which is a book he wrote. It's interesting. He wrote it 20 years ago, 1995. It was published. So it's, it's interesting to see how what he was predicting, whether or not it came true and how it came true. So let's just take a look at the um, article in time. And I'm going to start by just reading a little bit of what he wrote. Again, the old world order. He writes, this isn't what the 21st century was supposed to look like. The visceral reaction of many pundits, academics, and Obama administration officials to Russian President Vladimir Putin's virtual annexation of Crimea has been disbelief bordering on disorientation. As Secretary of State John Kerry said, it's really 19th century behavior in the 21st century. I remember Kerry said it. I said, right on, Kerry. Well, Kaplan doesn't necessarily agree. He says, well, the 19th century, as Kerry calls it, lives on and always will. Forget about the world being flat. Forget technology is the great democratizer. Forget the niceties of international law. Territory and the bonds of blood that go with it, territory and the bonds of blood that go with it, are central to what makes us human. The post-Cold War era was supposed to be about economics, interdependence, and universal values trumping the instincts of nationalism and nationalism's related obsession with the domination of geographical space. And so he's talking about, you know, the Cold War was supposed to be economics, interdependence. This is a modern view. We thought that everybody was going to be moving into modernity after the fall of the uh, Iron Curtain. And he said that this, this would, you know, the idea was that these values would trump the instincts of nationalism and nationalism's related obsession with geographical space. And, of course, that's more typical of the traditionalists, even the warrior red stage of development. But he says Putin's actions betray a singular truth, one that the U.S. should remember as it looks outward and around the globe. International relations are still about who can do what to whom. And that's just sheer power politics, which from an evolutionary perspective is down in the red warrior stage of development. That's where at some point push comes to shove. It's just not about ideology. It's not about economics. It's about who can do what to whom. And I think that's true. I think it's something that we integralists need to remember uh, because, you know, we live in a modern and postmodern world where, gosh, it's not only civilized, but it's sensitive. And it's uh, nobody's worried about borders and who's coming to get them or who's getting power over them. You know, we're worried about, you know, uh, does our Internet work? <laughs> you know, what's on TV? Uh, and uh, so, it, you know, we are in, a, as the Buddhists would say, we're in a bit of a God realm in Western modern society that a lot of people in the world don't have the um, privilege of being a part of. So he talks about what Putin was actually doing here and that he was, um, you know, he's president of a big autocratic country. It remains sprawling and, and insecure. It has never enjoyed any cartographic impediments. So it's, there's no natural borders to invasion from the French, German, Swedes, Lithuanians, and Poles over the course of its history. And that seeing that Putin could no longer, and I'm quoting Kaplan again, seeing that he could no longer control Ukraine by manipulating its democracy through Yanukovych's neo-Tsardom, 
and this is Yanukovych is the uh, uh, Ukrainian president that was deposed, Putin opted for a more direct and mechanical approach. He took de facto control of pro-Russian Crimea, and he kept the Russians' warm water fleet in Sebastopol, which is the only warm water port to the Mediterranean, and he was never going to let go of that. He would be irresponsible as the leader of Russia to let go of that. And I think there's some truth to that from, from Putin's perspective. So Kaplan goes on to write, another way to describe what is going on around the world now is old-fashioned zero-sum power politics. It's easy to forget that many Western policymakers and thinkers have grown up in, in conditions of unprecedented security and prosperity, and they have never been intellectually formed by the pre-Cold War world. Leaders beyond America and Europe, so talking about modern leaders tend to think that the world's more rational, but leaders beyond America and Europe tend to be highly territorial in their thinking. For them, international relations are a struggle for survival. As a result, Western leaders often think in universal terms, while rulers in places like Russia, the Middle East, and East Asia think in narrower terms, those that provide advantage to their nation or their ethnic groups only. So again, from a developmental point of view, you have a big struggle between the more modern pluralistic world and the more ethnocentric world that, as Ken, and Ken Wilber and Don Beck point out, 70% of the world's population is pre-modern in their thinking. As, and as integralists, we have to remember this and think about this. He goes on to talk about how the Ukraine is, you know, it may become a prosperous society at some point, but because of its location, it will always require a strong and stable relationship with Russia. And there's just no, you know, geography is going to trump everything else there. I don't know. I think there's some truth to that, too. And then at the end, and this is, you know, a little bit of a pessimistic article, but he says, if there is good news here, it is that most of the borders that are being redrawn or just re-underlined exist within states rather than between them. And a profound level of upheaval is occurring that in many cases precludes military intervention. In other world, words, the vast human cataclysms of the 20th century will not likely repeat themselves. And I think that's, you know, I'm glad he made that point at the end. Because one of the things we could point to as a developmental achievement of humanity is that despite this Ukrainian crisis, there's nobody, particularly in the West, who is advocating any kind of a military intervention. Not even the, the conservatives, not even the neoconservatives here. I mean, they're saying we should threaten it, we should keep it on the table, blah, blah, blah. But in the final analysis, nobody's arguing for boots on the ground. So... Let me just read uh, his last paragraph. He says, while our foreign policy must be morally based, the analysis behind it must be cold-blooded, with geography as, as its starting point. In geopolitics, the past never dies, and there is no modern world. And this is where I really, you know, come on, part company with him. Of course the past dies, otherwise we'd be you know, cannibalism, human sacrifice, slavery, um, genocides. And that is, you know, even war. 
This is the, this, what's going on in the Ukraine with Russia is genteel by any historical standards, as he points out earlier. And, and there's no modern world. Well, I beg to differ. There's a huge modern world. Uh, it's the, the, called the West. It's called the first world. And it is pretty capable of exerting a lot of, uh, of, of civilizing power on the world. And, and this is where I think he really, Kaplan really gets off base. He sees the ending of the Cold War. So this, you know, this pol polarized world of the, between the West and the Soviets uh, as releasing these new energies, uh, these new tribal energies where countries wanted to assert themselves and uh, ethnic identities want to assert themselves. And that's true. That absolutely happens. That that means that the world is really going to head in that direction. Well, these energies are going to be enhanced, but they're not going to be really increased, if you can catch the difference. I mean, these tribes that have been sort of homogenized into these big power structures like the Soviet Union or even the United States, and he talks about that. I'll get to that in a second. Um, it's not like when that polarized structure is removed, that they retreat back to their tribal identities, which is what he's arguing. Uh, they actually move forward. And, but he does make a couple good points in his article from 1995. I want to just take a quick look at that uh, with 20 years of hindsight. And he talks about the wars that were going on at that time. And there was a war in Liberia, Bosnia, the Caucasus, and Sri Lanka at the time he was writing this three of which are pacified, and the, the Caucasus are, you know, essentially as well. And then he was also talking about violence in American cities, and this is 1995, and it was worse then than it is now. But that's not what he was predicting. And, but still, he writes some very interesting stuff, and I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs. He writes that there are a large number of people on the planet, and he again points to the war-torn countries and to inner cities in America, to whom the comfort and stability of a middle-class life is utterly unknown. And these people find war and a barracks a step up rather than a step down. And I think he's actually describing people who are moving from tribal uh, and warrior and the thinking of, of these people. He says, for these people, fighting is in many ways not a means, but an end. They actually want to fight. Throughout history, for every person who has expressed his horror of war, there is another who found it in the most marvelous of all experiences that are vouchsafed to man, even to the point that he later spent a lifetime boring his descendants by recounting his exploits. And he's talking about what actually is a characteristic of the red stage of development, and that is a romantic militarism. This idea that war, as, as um, Chris Hedges wrote in his book, war is a force that gives us meaning. And that's not just people in red cultures. It's hard to find just, you know, pure red cultures. But it's true for people who are red in any culture. And so there are people who really do just want to get out there and fight. And that's part of the organizing principles of their psyche. And this is characteristic of that red stage of development. 
Uh, at Red, you fight for your tribe or your eth ethnic group. At Amber, you fight for God, basically, or a bigger a nation at that stage of development. But then he jumps the shark and goes off the rails, as far as I'm concerned. And he talks about, and this again, 20 years ago, this is The Coming Anarchy, the name of his book, Shattering the Dreams of the Post-Cold War. He says, as crime continues to grow in our cities, and of course it didn't, it's uh, substantially less now than it was in 1995, and the ability of state governments and criminal justice systems to protect their citizens diminishes. And I don't know what he's talking about. Urban crime may develop into low-intensity conflict by coalescing along racial, religious, social, and political lines. So in other words, the trend we were in in 1995 for him was that these violent urban centers were going to become lawless because the government's ability to protect the citizens diminishes, which of course it doesn't. So anyway, and then he goes on to write, these and many other factors will make the United States less of a nation than it is today, even as it gains territory following, and I love this, the peaceful dissolution of Canada. He writes, patriotism will become increasingly regional as people in Alberta and Montana discover that they have far more in common with each other than they do with Ottawa or Washington. And Spanish, Spanish speakers in the Southwest discover a greater commonality with Mexico City. Really? Spanish speakers in the Southwest United States are going to discover that they have a greater commonality with Mexico City than they do with America? Uh, this is a profound misunderstanding of development. I mean, this is the idea of, you know, just basic regression. And he's talking about the nine nations of North America and the, you know, the nine different, different ethnic and geographical groups in North America and how it's inevitable that we will devolve into where these have power. And he writes at the end, this is the last line of his, he was in, uh, an article in The Atlantic before it was a book. He writes, as Washington's influence wanes, and with it, the traditional symbols of American patriotism, North Americans will take psychological refuge in their insulated communities and cultures. And um, again, I would say wrong. But this is where, you know, I, I think, again, what Kaplan gets to is I think he has a good handle on the sort of red and traditionalist ethnocentric people that, that can't be reasoned with in the same way that people who are at modern and postmodern stages of development can be, and that they just have a different agenda, a different mentality, and that we have to be both, you know, working for the movement of a more civilized humanity and a more civilized world, but also taking into account that there are people at these previous stages of development that really not only don't agree with us on that, but they don't even get it. It's not about that to them. It's about uh, furthering the interests of their tribe or group or nation. And that if we hold both of those at the same time, we have a more integral understanding of things. And I think that's good. So I appreciate Kaplan. He wrote one of the three most, most influential papers that came out of that era, that early 90s when uh, the Berlin Wall had fallen and the Soviet Union was dismantling. And it's him and Samuel P. Huntington who wrote The Clash of Civilizations, which organized the world into a, a clash between Islam and Christianity, mainly. 
And then Francis, Francis Fukuyama's article, The End of History, which is, was basically a Hegelian um, thesis that uh, the modern world would be the triumph of liberal democracies over these uh, you know, tribal currents. So all three of those have a different sort of, you know, Kaplan, Fukuyama, and Huntington have three different theses that, you know, all foreign policy experts read. And I think even that's cool that, uh, you know, we have those three perspectives so beautifully written. These are all smart guys. And, you know, from an integral perspective, we want to take the goodies and run, get the best of all of what is um, offered there. All right. So if there are any questions or comments about anything we talked about, please press 1. We do have a, a question from Gail. Okay. You want to patch her in? Yeah, hey, Gail. Hi. Hey, thanks again for yet another provocative conversation. I so enjoy listening to you. Um, my question isn't anything that you had a topic on tonight. So if, if there are other listeners and other calls, please skip over me and, you know, um, oh, and address it. something more on topic. But I would love to hear your update on uh, the current Chris Christie um, disintegration of a politician's um, future career. I, you know, being one who's like six hours time zone away from the East Coast, I live for um, getting home at night and watching the programs on MSNBC that I have recorded just to scan for my daily Chris Christie update. And this is a story that has really gripped me. And I'm curious to know what you think now after the last couple months have unfolded. Right. Well, um, hang on here. There was one thing I wanted to look at, uh, apropos that, that, oh, here it is. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see this this fall of this almost Shakespearean figure. At least he was sort of uh, coming on that way, you know, sort of bigger than life, where personality was so much a part of the package. And smart, you know, I mean, I've always thought that he was too smart to, to do something as stupid as this bridge thing. Uh, and that at least he had a plausible deniability between him and his staff. But still, that there was a, a you know, as we would say from an integral perspective, there was a, there was a louche, there was a, 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 a subtle energy, there was a sort of a, a, a mutual agreement among the staff that you reward your friends and punish your enemies and that we all, you know, it's just like we were talking about, that at some point politics is about who can do what to whom. And it's interesting is that politicians, on one hand, they have to sort of operate at that stage of development. On the other hand, they have to have some sort of distance from it so that they don't turn off the voters. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't paid much attention to the story in the last week or so. because I don't think there's been that much except, you know, his own investigation, which exonerated him. And that was a surprise to no one. And that the investigation continues. And I, I guess I, where I fall out is if he's exonerated, that is, if he, it, it, there's no proof shown that he knew about this or participated in it in, in any way, I think this whole thing could actually accrue to his benefit. 
because, you know, we want our leaders to be able to take a punch and to be able to come back up from the dead. And that's actually a purifying process for leaders. It, it, it's purifying for them and it's purifying for our understanding and our view of them. It's one of the things that I, I love the cover of the, um, the magazine The Week that showed after Obamacare came up with their 7.1 million uh, subscribers or signups. And it shows Obama coming out of the emergency room and he's on a crutch and he's missing a tooth and he's got a black eye and he's just smiling from ear to ear because, you know, he may have gotten beat up, but he won. And that's powerful. So if it turns out that way for Christie, I think he may benefit from it. If it turns out that there's some smoking gun and he's attached to it, I think he's, you know, dead. Uh, he may be anyway, but... Um, you know, uh, that's where I'm at with it at this point. Do you have any thoughts on it, Gail, or where are you at with it? Well, I guess a follow-up on that would be um, thinking, and, and as you know, I would be one of those you refer to as the more casual uh, interested parties in Integral as opposed to the folks, you know, that are there at the Institute who have really studied this, but I've gleaned mm -hmm. this from you, right? So from an integral perspective, because my position with Christy is that he's lying and that he is all in. And what I mean by that is I don't mean that he thought up the idea or told people directly to do it, but that he knew about it much further than January 9th and that he was trying to cover it up. And he realized that he is, in my opinion, he is just like, I've got to put all my cards on the table, deny every single thing, or I'm done because there is no. not going to be any thinning the ground. So my my sort of my question is on that color scale that you use. When someone is just like moving forward with a line and creating a story, sort of like, um, you know, this is my case now, right? This is my new right. truth. Where do you, where do they fall on that um, rainbow mm -hmm. of colors? Well, they can be. You can lie at any stage of development, and if he was part of it. And he just decided, I got to go all in here. It's kind of like um, O.J. Simpson with deny, 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 and just hope for the best because you really don't know how it's going to go. Then that's some pretty high stakes poker. And that's, you know, that would be typical. I mean, again, you'd find that at any stage of development, but we would, you know, sort of throw that into the red stage, I think. It's uh, I'm just sticking my neck out and I'm going for it. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that makes Christie so interesting is that he does have that, uh, even physical, with, even with his size, he has this um, power that is, you know, red. And then he's also able to operate, you know, with the traditionals and the moderns, even postmoderns in a way. You know, he was, he was always, you know, pretty good at the media and he was able to be governor of, you know, a pretty progressive uh, state, New Jersey. So I'm actually with you in the sense that I find it hard to imagine that he didn't know, especially since this thing went on for four days. And Christie's notoriously a micromanager. So it just doesn't make sense that he didn't know. That's not even the issue. The issue politically is, can he be proved to have known? And he may be too smart for that. And so we'll see. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm with you in another way, too, in that it's a fascinating story. And I, I, I haven't checked in with it too much uh, in the last week or so. 
But this is a really, really fascinating story. And we have the best investigators and we have the best prevaricators and we have, you know, the whole scene, the whole arena is in play here around him and this issue. And it's a great, again, Shakespearean. It's a great, great drama. So we'll stay tuned on it. All right. Well, I think it's uh, time we can call it quits. We're after eight here. So we've been at it for an hour. And uh, thank you folks so much. Uh, I always enjoy getting your emails. You can go to thedailyevolver.com and there's a, a place where you can leave a audio message for me. And I love those. And you can also go on Integral Life and comment. We post these calls on Integral Life and I do generally do a write-up on them. So it's always good to hear from you. It's very, very good to be doing this with you. I enjoy it so much. And uh, thank you for tuning in again tonight. And we'll see you again next Tuesday night, same time for another look at the evolution of consciousness and culture. Take care, folks.